Welcome to the PCOS podcast. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, degree qualified nutritionist. This podcast is a place to help show you how to reduce your PCOS symptoms. Getting diagnosed with PCOS can be super confusing. It typically comes with very little information about what the condition actually is and how to manage it long-term. In this podcast, we cover the keys to understanding what PCOS is, the best approaches to improving your PCOS, and of course, how to reduce your PCOS symptoms through non-medication-based approaches. If you've been recently diagnosed with PCOS or you've had PCOS for a long time and you're wondering, what the heck do I do now and what do I need to do to reduce my symptoms, this podcast exists to show you exactly that. If you have PCOS and you want a strategic approach to help you lose weight, banish acne, stabilize your cycles, and reduce anxiety-inducing hair growth, then I would love to invite you to register for my free PCOS Masterclass. In this Masterclass, I'm going to be breaking down my exact process that I use when I'm helping clients like you reduce and resolve their PCOS symptoms without medication. To get access to the Masterclass, all you need to do is head to the link in the show notes, or you can access it directly by going to selendouglas.com forward slash webinar hyphen registration hyphen EG, or you'll find that link in the show notes below. Pregnancy is an incredibly exciting time, but for some, getting crippling morning sickness, or I should say all-day sickness, can really dampen the excitement. Trimester 1 can be really challenging. Often no one knows you're pregnant yet, and if you're anything like me, you might have spent most of this 12 or 13 weeks feeling a little bit hungover, nauseous, and even constipated. Often your best intentions to eat the most nutrient-dense foods can fly by the wayside because of how you're feeling. Shelley McKenzie, nutritionist, naturopath, and mama of three, joins us to share her skills and expertise in dealing with all-day sickness. Hi, Shelley. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Me too. We had a few debacles getting here today, but we both made it. (laughs) I know. And I'm so glad we did. Like, honestly, I think this is going to be an awesome episode to cover. I know it's like a topic that I get asked all the time about, so I'm going to be happy to be able to direct people to this potty. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Super, super helpful. Um, Before we do get into today's topic. Um, I'd love if you could just share a bit about you and what you do in clinic, the kind of clients that you work with and a bit about your journey and that kind of thing. Yeah, cool. So um, I'll try to keep it short. I guess my journey started when I was 24 and I was diagnosed with um, a condition called Hashimoto's. Um, I didn't know a lot about it at the time, but uh, yeah, uh, basically I had like a series of symptoms that happened and I became um, really quite ill when I was 24 and I had been previous to that. I'm a country girl, so I'd moved to Melbourne and I honestly was like really living it up in Melbourne. Like I was um, a PT, a personal trainer, but I definitely was living that typical like Monday to Friday lifestyle where I exercised and I ate what I thought was healthy. Um, And, you know, come Thursday to Sunday, I was binge drinking and, you know, late nights and all the rest of it. So eventually that just caught up to me. And when I was 24, um, yeah, I became really sick. And after, you know, test and test and test and going and seeing specialists and literally my diagnosis just like went 
from everything from just like, oh, you've just, you know, you've got um, a bit of adrenal um, fatigue to you've got cancer. Um, eventually they came up with a diagnosis of um, Hashimoto's disease. And so I feel like back then, and you'll probably know as well, because I know this is an area you chat um, a lot about, but it was quite uncomfortable. Like, I, I didn't know of anyone with Hashimoto's like 12 years ago, you know, and gluten-free was still not a thing and, and what have you. Anyway, I went into the doctor. They gave me um, a pack of pills and they said, you'll need to take one of these every day for the rest of your life. And at the time, I just knew that there was a lot of room for movement in terms of the way that I had been living. And so I chose to start researching and change my lifestyle and um, at that point, I went um, alcohol-free for two years. I cut out gluten, refined sugar, and dairy. Um, and, you know, I tried every diet under the sun, um, just always trying to, like, see what worked for me, really. And um, eventually I decided, like, I was just so into this world of nutrition that I started to go and study nutritional medicine. So I did that. I learned, like, learned more and more and more. Um, I was able to successfully manage my condition and not need medication. And from there, once I qualified, I just wanted to help others. So um, study nutritional medicine um, and then that led me to study naturopathy. And, yeah, and then I guess fast forward, um, I am a mum of three as well. So um, I've had four pregnancies. The first one was a miscarriage, whether that was, you know, to do with Hashimoto's or not, not sure. Um, and then I've had three successful pregnancies since. So I did the whole three under three with babies. So my eldest is a three and a half and my youngest is six months. And so that's been um, a roller coaster within itself. And I fully practice online now. So I, I uh, specialize in fertility, pregnancy and postpartum. Um, and yeah, I guess that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Yeah, massive. And so amazing. I think like to go down that rabbit hole at 24 is a really big deal because you're still mm. really young then and you're still, I mean, I remember what I, when I was 24, I feel like I was still just having so much fun. Like I, it would have been really, really hard to make a lot of those changes so strictly, particularly if that was quite different to how you had been living. And like we were talking about before, gluten-free wasn't really a thing, you know. It mm. was a lot harder to get access to those kinds of foods and then I imagine like socially quite hard as well for you to make those changes. Yeah, for sure. It's funny because every relationship I built in Melbourne was based on alcohol and I didn't realise at the time that, you know, everybody knew like this party in Shelley and I had some really solid friendships but um, all of those were around, well, most of those I should say were around alcohol and so I basically, um, when I got that diagnosis and realised what I needed to do, I actually just like cut ties with basically everyone I knew in Melbourne because, and I didn't mention this, but I also went into the world of bodybuilding because I just needed like a really strong goal to be able to say to people when they, when I said I wasn't drinking alcohol and the first question is why mm. uh, I just needed to be able to say, Oh, because I'm training, you know, or I'm bodybuilding. And that just helped me be able to do what I needed to do to, you know, find that health, um, and, and restore my body. Like my body was so incredibly depleted. Mm. Um, like I got so sick and there was a four week period. I ended up having a 
lived back at my parents' house and my now husband at the, the boyfriend at the time, he was like traveling back and forth between Melbourne and my parents. I couldn't be left alone um, because I was so sick. I needed to be carried even just to get to the toilet. Like my uh, now hubby or dad had to literally like carry me and put me on the toilet because I was so fatigued and weak that I couldn't even get off the couch. Like doctors had to come and do at home visits. I couldn't make it to the, to the doctors. Like it was a really, you know, it was a, and I guess that's why my diagnosis, it took such a long time to actually work out what was wrong with me because um, commonly that isn't, I guess, how Hashimoto's presents and most people don't get to that point with their Hashimoto's where um, I guess they're, they're so sick that they can't even lift their body off the couch. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, it was it was definitely an interesting time. And, and I mean, it, it does make me the practitioner I am now because I have tried every diet. I have, you know, gone through this massive um, change and I understand how hard it is to make change within, you know, your lifestyle and yeah. Um, and family dynamics and all of that sort of stuff. So, and I was lucky my now husband, he sort of came on this wild journey and stuck around <laughs> while I worked it all out. So that was that was a plus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good having someone to share it with. And did you ever have to take thyroxine or is that not a, amazing? No, never did. Um, I had it. Uh, at the time, we were about to, right before I was diagnosed, we were heading off to India to ride a motorbike down the coastline of India for six weeks. And the doctors advised me not to go. And I said, well, I'm going. And I thought India is the perfect place for food to try. Like, you know, you've got all your warming, beautiful healing herbs and everything's like um, well cooked. And, you know, so I thought I'll, I'll go and see what I can do. And I went um, plant-based while I was over there. And um, But when I left the doctors, they literally gave me like a bag of pills to take. And they said, go and get, um, they actually advised me to go and get regular blood tests while I was there which a lot of people once diagnosed with Hashimoto's, they're put on medication yeah. and that's it. Uh, if anyone has been to India, you'll understand why that didn't happen and why I didn't get regular <laughs> blood tests. Like I was not stepping foot into a uh, hospital over there. Uh, but, yeah, anyway, so, um, yeah, wild, wild journey. But, no, never took thyroxine, have never needed to. Um, but, of course, I still do have flare-ups with that. So yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I know my triggers, I know how to manage it and yeah. There yeah, you go. amazing. And I think that's great for anyone listening, like just to get that because we don't, I think we, if it's diagnosed, we're usually not told like, Hey, there are other options here, um, that can either be used alongside thyroxine if that's the, um, avenue you want to go down or like instead of as well, like it just really depends on where you're at and it's so amazing I think for you to be at that point and not have ever taken it um and be able to be where you are now it's incredible yeah well I I sort of like I knew within myself that there was only a way up like I honestly couldn't get much sicker than what I was (laughs) and so like and and because of the lifestyle I'd been living like I knew that there there had to be something else yeah exactly um but I mean there is for everyone you know even if you think you've been living quite a well balanced sort of lifestyle I I mean now we know a lot more about Hashimoto's as well we know how it Mm. affects the guts we know how you know it affects so many different um body systems and our nutrient absorption and all of that sort of stuff so even if 
uh, someone is living quite a well-balanced life and eating quite well, whether they're absorbing those essential nutrients that we need and all of that sort of stuff all comes into it as well. So I feel like there's a lot of wiggle room for everyone when it comes to Hashimoto's. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. Um, Well, today we're talking more about like pregnancy and trimester one. Um, And you're obviously a bit of a guru because you've been through it three times yourself. (laughs) Um, But also, obviously, this is something that you work with in clinics so much. So I think it's a great topic because what I find, and maybe you'll agree, is that clients will come to us preconception which is amazing. That's my favorite when they're really setting themselves up for those um, optimal sort of nutrient status throughout pregnancy. But they come with to us and they have the best intentions and sort of like this idealistic view of what their nutrition will look like and what their day on a plate will be like in pregnancy. Um, and not to everyone, but I think for a lot of women, it can be. Um, I can make them feel a bit down. I think once they get to trimester one, if they do have a lot of nausea and morning sickness and they're really not feeling like eating the right kinds of foods. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Women can get really, and I, and it can really change the way a woman has envisioned her pregnancy and the way that she moves forward through that pregnancy as well. I like to sort of break it down in terms of first trimester is a little bit of a write-off. Hopefully we've had that opportunity to, um, you know, do some preconception support and then we just manage whatever those symptoms are in that first trimester as best as we can and it's more survival. And then second trimester is really like when most women are feeling best and we can really utilise and, and prop up all those nutrients. And then third trimester is really about like, you know, A, still trying to do do that and, and support the woman, but also supporting like the baby and, and the amount of nutrients that babies take in from mother and, and what have you. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's always, I feel like second trimester is your comeback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I just, I remember, I didn't have terrible morning sickness, but I just remember feeling so fatigued, like so, so tired. Mm. Even just the thought of like having to cook myself a meal, I was like, no, not a chance. So luckily I was very fortunate. My partner did nearly all of the cooking in trimester one, but I remember thinking, um, yeah, how hard it was to just be bothered to do anything. And then when I got to trimester two, I was like, I'm back. Like, this is- yeah. The real me is back, which was just kind of like the lights, which because it's just it's such a weird feeling. Like it's a different level of different kind of fatigue. I felt like really body heavy. Mm, yeah, and it is. It's um yeah, it is. It is different, but eventually it sort of does does pass, you know. And yeah, there's one percent of women who will experience hyperemesis, which is mm-hmm. the most severe morning sickness you can have. But the statistics are very low. And so, you know, for that 1% of women, like my heart breaks for you mm. because it's generally until um, uh, until birth that women will experience that type of, of nausea. Um, and it is, it's debilitating. And in most cases, hospitalisation, you know, it's the second most common cause of hospitali- hospitalisation in pregnancy. Uh, and so that in itself is a whole different ballgame. Yeah. For most women, by the time we hit that 12, 14 weeks, most women are coming back out of it and the fog's cleared and you're able to actually start eating food you enjoy, which is 
such a nice feeling like after you've just sort of yeah been feeling the way that you've been feeling (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely cool well let's dive into like what are some of the things that we can start doing if we've got um nausea yeah so I guess like morning sickness I like to explain to women I'm very good at finding silver linings and so um, (laughs) 85% of women will actually experience some form of nausea and for most women it hits around that six week mark Um, by 10 weeks it's normally peaking and then by 12 to 14 weeks as I mentioned it's often starting to um, leave us Uh, most women do know of morning sickness as you know a positive thing because it means that your pregnancy is going well and you're probably going to have a better pregnancy outcome so that is a silver lining for um morning sickness right so basically it's it's likely due to that um that high placental production of hcg and so this is why we're feeling nauseous or we're vomiting or what have you, but it means your pregnancy is going well. So I think that's a really important thing to hold on to because in that first trimester, a lot of women do need something to hold on to. Um, and the better we can manage um, morning sickness in the first trimester, the better, you're at, the better your pregnancy outcomes are and your birth outcomes are for third trimester as well. So it is something like that um, some women will just think, oh, I'm drinking ginger tea or what have you, and it's not working. Like there is interventions we can do and things we can do around like supplementation and all that, which we'll dive into. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess the better you can manage it in your first trimester, the the better your birth outcomes are as well. Um, so from a clinical perspective, there's sort of two things that we want to work out. So there's two sort of um, hormonal um um uh oh my god I've lost my words two hormones like two, two um or drivers kind of thing oh my god thank you yeah so your first one is um hypoglycemia and your second one is a slow digestion so what you're really wanting to do is establish which one is playing into this if not both uh so in order to do that with the hypoglycemia um generally speaking it's worse like your morning sickness will be worse with delayed meals so if you have woken up and you haven't had a chance to eat breakfast straight away for example you might find that the morning sickness kicks in or if you've gone like five hours without a meal or what have you it's normally relieved with eating and there's normally pretty strong carbohydrate and sugar uh, cravings with the hypoglycemia so that's your first one, your first driver, thank you. And then your second driver is a slow digestion. So generally um, most women will experience some form of slow digestion anyway, but you'll have poor appetite. Your nausea will actually feel worse after eating, not better. Um, you'll have this prolonged feeling of, of fullness after meals and even like a bit of reflux or, or burping and constipation. So they're pretty common signs of like which one to look for so I think that's important because if you can narrow down which one is at play here then you can assist and sort of get more down to the root cause rather than just taking you know your All standard the strategies exactly mm. and like intervention um, I think rest of it is the most commonly prescribed thing for morning sickness and it's um, in terms of compliance most women are very compliant on rest of it but of course, and and it does work, but it does come with symptoms as well. So you normally um, can have 
mood swings will feel a bit groggy in your head. There's normally like another whole nother level of fatigue with taking it. So, you know, I think trying to treat that root cause rather than just going for like the medication um, mm. is definitely the way to go there. Um, I, for- I actually forgot what you asked me. <laughs> I've gone on a bit of a rant there. Um, but, yeah, so that's sort of was- like I guess the ins and outs. Yeah, 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 differentiating between the two. And I love as well what you said before earlier about like breaking it down into kind of time segments for women as well as in like this is with the onset, this is probably where it's going to peak and then it's going to start getting better here because I think um, we can have a tendency to feel like if we're in discomfort or in pain or something's uncomfortable for us that it's going to last forever. Um, And so having that to kind of, and, and it's different for everyone, you always I think shy away from trying to talk in absolutes that it would be definitely gone mm. by week 14, of course, because everyone is different. But I do think I even personally just found it so helpful to think like, okay, cool. I'm at week 12 now. Like it should be starting to pass soon. Like I'm going to be out of the woods here soon because otherwise you're like, oh my God, I've got another what, like 26 weeks of feeling like absolute crap. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, having that um, time, factor to hold on to is super, super important Um, because it's like I was listening to a podcast the other day and it is like, you know, being at the gym, how they count down reps. Yeah. Like that's, I think it's the same psychology. Like, okay, cool. Like I can do this for another five seconds. Um, And I think it's like that. It was like that for me anyway. And trying to, I was like, I've got this for another two weeks. I can keep going. And that's it. And I think when you've got rough you know, knowledge as to when, and, and as you said, it's, it's for most women, not every woman. Yeah. Right? And, but I think when you've got a rough idea as well, you can start to see the days a little bit clearer as to when you are feeling well, like week 13 might hit and you might all of a sudden go, you know what, I've only actually felt nauseous five out of the seven days or, yeah. you know, only two hours of today as opposed to, so you can start to um, I guess, see that it is starting to pass as well, which makes it a lot easier than, you know, when you're in the thick of that morning sickness and you're at that week, say 10 when it's peaking or somewhere between that six and 10 weeks, um, then it is really hard to see out of it. And you mm. can just feel like you felt sick all day, you know, and I guess the other level that makes morning sickness so incredibly challenging is most women haven't let their support people, they've let their partner and and maybe their GP in on it, maybe their their family. No, and so you're forever just trying to, like it's the biggest thing you'll go through on first trimester is one of the hardest trimesters for most women, yet no one else knows about it. You know, I remember I was um, my first pregnancy, so I actually didn't have much morning sickness in any of my pregnancies but my first one which was the unsuccessful pregnancy the level of fatigue I felt was excruciating and um I just was like so bedridden but also trying to I was I was running a physical nutrition clinic at the time and so I was trying to show up and my clients have always show up but I was running it inside of like a chiropractic clinic Mm -hmm. and I remember one day the boss pulled me aside and he was like you're just not doing what you're meant to be doing. Like you're just not showing up the way that I want you to show up. And he's like, this is just not on. And I just burst into tears and uh, like I was just like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, and I was so apologetic and everything because it's not like me. But I had this massive secret of 
I'm pregnant, you know, and I think at that point I was like maybe 10 weeks and a week later I lost that pregnancy. Um, But, you know, it was like just I I always think of women in that point because I, I just think I never experienced morning sickness, but I definitely did feel that, you know, debilitating fatigue and I felt like I couldn't tell anyone around me Mm. and you do you you feel like you're not showing up and and so that just adds like this whole nother layer to the way you're feeling (laughs) yeah 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 definitely and I think as well like the kind of like I guess this would go a little bit hand in hand with the potentially like the severity of the sickness that you're feeling but um what I've heard anyway from clients is that in some of the more severe cases, it can remove a little bit of that excitement around mm. being pregnant because all of a sudden they feel pretty awful. They can't do a lot of the things that they were, um, you know, doing pre-pregnancy. They're not really, often you don't feel like exercising if you're quite fatigued as well. And then, of course, you know, you're not getting those endorphins and things that you're used to getting on a daily basis. So it's so multifactorial. Um, mm. But, yeah, I think having those time segments is play- in place is really, really good to try and focus on um, to keep you going. Um, and then in terms of the strategies, did you want to, like, should we segment those into those two key areas and sort of, like, how we would address those? Yeah, so I guess, um, well, you know, if, if you're noticing that eating more frequently is best for you, then definitely eat more frequent and we can jump into some dietary strategies as well. Um, but, yeah, I guess, well, let's do that. So in terms of like dietary, um, most women try to avoid sugar other than fruits because it's just going to make it worse. Um cold or frozen um like fresh fruits particularly can be really well tolerated and a lot of women like just sort of sucking on that cold Mm. coldness so that's really good um and uh plain salty foods are definitely the way to go so I always say just try to jack up whatever you're eating so say you're wanting a rice cracker or like a rice cake or whatever um which is all like a salada, which I've had some clients eat, just things like that, you know, that crunch, that dryness. Salty. At least, <laughs> yeah, at least try to like, you know, bulk it up where possible. So if you can have either the dry cracker and then try to follow with a protein and a fat once your tummy's settled. Mm. Um, otherwise, you know, so you might have a, a rice cake and then have like, you know, egg and um avocado or something like that or or ideally on top of each other and have it all together um but yeah definitely try to follow your plane of foods with uh, a a protein and a a fat if possible um so again if you're having a piece of toast like follow it up with you know some nut butter or you know to at least have that on top that sort of yeah um caffeine is probably going to make it a little bit worse as well so, um, yeah, avoiding caffeine and any other triggers. Um, small regular meals, which I mentioned, it will be really important. Um, and having, I always recommend like having those complex carbs at all times, just when, yeah. when you have, when you need them. So even some women of mine will go to bed with, you know, uh, some rice 
crackers beside their bed just so when they wake up, particularly if you are feeling like it's better once you've eaten. Uh, so that's sort of what we're doing for the hypo hypoglycemic. To be honest, the the slow digestion, I'm doing most of that through supplementation, which yeah. we can chat about as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, dietary, yeah, it, it really is that that survival at the yeah. start. And I think sometimes it, because when you're feeling like that, often the last thing you feel like eating is like eggs or avocado, like you probably do just want to have like a plain piece of toast or something. And I think there is an element where you kind of have to be a little bit mind over matter in those situations, sometimes knowing that, okay, like I really don't feel like this right now, but I know that if I have it, I'm probably going to feel better afterwards. Um, Yeah. That's what I have to kind of like trick myself into doing, being like, you know what, I really don't feel like eating this right now, but I'm going to like, do my best and just have a little bit of it and see what happens. And then I found, yeah, that that would end up meaning I didn't feel as sick by the next meal. Um, I loved doing like salted almonds and things like that or like Mm. um, tamari almonds because they're like salty and crunchy. And so I just, yeah, tried to find little things like that that would, um, would help. And then I've also found doing even like a small bit of protein before bed is helpful as well, just for helping keep that, um, helping to keep that um, blood sugar stable or more stable overnight. Um, And I think it can be quite different as well. If you've been more used to eating like three meals and a snack or even three meals a day, if that's been more your style of eating pre-pregnancy, it's a lot of almost like undoing that initially And then also going by trimester two, you might be happy to go back to something more similar to that. Like often your eating patterns look really weird in trimester one and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so, so true. And, you know, when when you're chatting about those alternatives as well, um, even if you're feeling like lots of pasta, try for like a lentil pasta or you know, you can buy the sweet potato and like pumpkin gnocchi and just yeah. try to find those healthier options where possible. And yeah, it, it sort of is like a bit of a go with the flow, I, yeah. I believe, um, that first trimester for sure. Yeah. Um, and then I guess uh, if it's more of the slow digestion and constipation is there, then it's the constipation that you're really wanting to try to relieve um, because that's going to be playing into it as well. So looking at um, fibre intake, which can be quite hard and and I guess the wrong types of, of fibre we're getting in that first trimester often, mm. particularly if we're eating lots of like refined um, carbohydrates, but, you know, opting for vegetables or whichever vegetables you can tolerate. Um, obviously there is that food aversion, which you mentioned before, mm. that comes into it. Like some women literally don't even want to cook in first trimester. Mm. Like it really is a challenging time. Um, so hopefully you've got somebody who can cook. Um, but, yeah, you, I guess, yeah, trying to opt for veggies where possible, fruits where possible, grounding up like some nuts and seeds could be really helpful even if you're just yeah. putting that in like a bit of coconut yogurt or if you, if you can have a smoothie, throwing it in a smoothie. Again, sometimes the liquid of a smoothie will feel like too much. Um, yeah, or going, you know, adding... Um, 
I don't know, different like rices into soups or yeah, it, it, yeah, just it's a hard one. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you're looking for the fiber, I guess. So the hypoglycemia, you're looking to eat regularly, ideally carbs followed by protein and fat, and then the the um, slow digestion. You're more looking at your fiber intake and like how you can. Um, uh, diminish if you can that constipation because yeah. that can be contributing to it yeah yeah definitely and then just also I think by hydration as well like some women are really thirsty and then others are, it's like really really hard to get them to drink enough yeah so yeah, obviously yeah absolutely. you need to definitely be drinking enough and then what I have a couple of like well one supplement I tend to like gravitate towards for um slow transit time but is there any that you love to use in particular um i use a fair bit of slippery elm when it comes to um when it comes to morning sickness and the constipation side of things so yeah i tend to use uh slippery elm a fair bit if i'm using something like psyllium husks uh you just, as you mentioned just now, the hydration, like some women find it easy. Obviously, with psyllium husks, you need to make sure that your water intake is appropriate. Otherwise, essentially, you'll have the opposite effect. So, um, yeah, that I'm a little bit more cautious around. But the slippery elm I find quite good. Um, and if a woman is experiencing um, any nausea throughout her, you know, pregnancy, even into the second trimester, I find a slippery elm, particularly in a capsule form, mm-hmm. can really help settle that but also help from a digestive level as well um what do you tend to use um I love by the way that you've mentioned capsules because I think as well like slippery elm can be quite an interesting texture Mm. particularly when you're in that point um I sometimes use pea um, partially hydrolyzed guar gum and I find that helpful um there's one in more severe cases I'll often use that ultra flora GI regulate yeah. Um, I find that to be quite helpful. And then maybe if um, she's already taking a magnesium, I'll sometimes maybe swap that to like a mag citrate, um, something like that, which I know the Natura Best brand is that, um, I think that's a mag citrate. So like that's quite a nice combination. I find the citrate with the um, PHGG works quite well in most women. Um, if yeah. they've got more of a um complex gut history then sometimes that's not always appropriate because they might be a little bit reactive to the partially hydrolyzed guar gum but yeah I found that works really really well in most cases yeah it's nice and look like supplements is a funny thing right because again I feel like as practitioners like we're really trying to set women up in that first trimester Mm. for um not not necessarily the best outcomes for them and maybe of course that's key in our in mm. our mind but it's more like making sure that we're not setting them up for failure because again like some supplements can really set the woman off as well right and so yeah. even when we were just chatting then um it reminded me that because I mentioned slippery arm capsules but um tablets are actually um often tolerated better than the the capsule form just because they're absorbed quicker into the gut so Mm. um that's a that's just like a little handy tip but then Mm. as well just looking like things like iron might set off um yeah it depends what prenatal you're taking and all of that kind of thing yeah Yeah. whether you've got like activated bees so 
it is really important to also just be checking in. Um, of course, like, yeah, there's all these supplements we're mentioning, but then there's heaps that actually can set you off as well. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then you get to the point where you just feel like no supplements, um, which I guess, again, is why preconception care, if you've had that opportunity, is fabulous. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so anyway. so yeah, yeah, I think that that, again, like highlights the importance of ideally, if you can, doing you know, a few months of preconception care because you've had hopefully a minimum of three months of taking your prenatal. And it just Mm. means I think you do have that little bit more um, like wiggle room for nutrients and things in that first trimester. Um, You know, I think I am some clients, if they've got more severe morning sickness come back and they're like, I can't take any of my supplements. They all set me off. They gross me out and whatever. And I am obviously always still encouraging and looking for strategies of how we might be able to include those again, but less concerned if they've done a few months prior of setting those really nice foundations. Because you know, like their folate's probably going to be really good. Their iodine's probably going to be really good. Whereas someone who has maybe come to you at like week eight and they haven't been on those things, it's always a, a little bit more dicey, I guess, with that sort of stuff. For sure. And that can give that woman the peace of mind as well in that first trimester if she's feeling mm. a bit out of control with what she's able to to consume and then not able to have her supplements on top. At yep. least she can feel at peace as well, knowing that, you know, her levels probably are quite appropriate for that first trimester. And during first trimester, like baby isn't starting to to take those maternal reserves uh just yep. well of some nutrients, obviously like your iodine and things like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's less of in that first trimester where babies are taking your maternal reserves as it is like your second and third. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. And then, you know, most women will know of things like ginger. So if we're, mm. um, we've sort of talked about root cause, but then removing that um, intensity at the time, I guess ginger is a really good one. Um, so I will often encourage women to get a root of ginger, like a fresh root of ginger and freeze it in a, in a Ziploc bag. And then every day just in like warm water or what have you, or in a tea form, just getting out and grating it. Mm-hmm. When you, when it's frozen and then you grate it, it sort of comes out as like the consistency of Parmesan cheese. And so, um, women find it much easier to consume the whole root to the ginger it doesn't come out like shredded cheese if it's you know how many great yeah, yeah, yeah. frozen yeah um so that's one way you can do it you could also buy ginger tablets um and then things like the sugar-free ginger beer can be really settling because it's also got the bubbles yeah um so something like that or yeah, can be can be quite settling. Um, I don't know how you feel about kombucha in pregnancy. Um, I I personally recommend it because yeah, it, I I don't recommend um homemade kombucha yeah. in pregnancy. But the you know the hoops the market that, options are pretty safe. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The hoops they have to jump through to get their product on the shelf. So yeah. I also do promote like a kombucha, um, a ginger kombucha or something yeah, to sip on as well, just to help settle it. Yeah. So ginger is a really good one, um, just for settling that nausea. And then also you've got um, things like your your vitamin B six, which yeah. I would normally do in divided um, doses throughout the day. Um, 
we sort of talked about the probiotics and the electrolytes you mentioned as well. One that I like to use is called, do you use the brassica? No. Is that? No. Yeah, it's um, it's a really nice sort of electrolyte that that women can take um, and, you know, just to make sure that they are replenishing because the hydration is a really big one in that yeah. first trimester. Yeah. Um, so brassica can be a nice little addition there. Um, yeah, anything. What else do you use for the actual symptoms themselves? I'm just trying to think what else. Um, yeah, that's similar to what I've got. I also um, sometimes recommend, some women find they don't get any relief from this, but sometimes acupuncture can help as well. Mm. Um, that's something I probably got the most relief from was acupuncture. Um, and then also everyone's obviously got different work commitments and things like that, but like where you can just actually allowing yourself to rest as well, I think is really, really big because um, I really, really struggled trying to push through and that yeah. honestly just made it so much worse. So I kind of gave in and just allowed myself to like, yeah, I for the first time in six or seven years, my partner saw me take a nap in trying to one. <laughs> I've just never, ever been that person. But I also got COVID in my trimester one as well. So I kind of got like the double whammy of fatigue in that sense. Um, and I found rest. And then the other thing is some health food stores have, I can't remember the brand name, but there's these good um, hydrolyte ice blocks. Um, oh, nice. And they worked really, really well for me because, again, I wanted that like cold, fruity, thing and they were sweetened with monk fruit so they were quite low um like the sugar they obviously had some sugar from the actual fruit but they had lots of different good flavors like raspberry and coconut mango that kind of thing um and I like basically lived off those for a period of time I reckon I was eating like three or four a day (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh but that's the thing right you found like a better alternative and something that actually does settle your stomach and and you know you can survive (laughs) yeah yeah. it's perfect yeah definitely Mm. and I think always just like trying to find better options like if you're craving like I don't know, hot chips or something like that. That's obviously a really common craving. Like, can you make some really good hot chips at home? Mm. Like that kind of thing. It's fine to eat that kind of thing. I think it's just for the most part trying to find better options where you can. Um, And if available to you, I think getting someone else to even cook your food is really, really helpful because, yeah, I um, found it was more like I had definitely think I had the food aversions, but just like the effort of thinking about like, oh my God, I have to make myself food now and then I'm going to have to clean up after. I just didn't want a bar of it. And so then that leads you to like, well, just have the salty crackers on their own. All right. Like, right. Because what's easy and not going to make a mess is like the dry stuff in the cupboard, which doesn't have much in it to offer you in terms of nutrients. So yeah, I think wherever possible, those little hacks definitely help. Yeah, I think it's important because although at the time that dry cracker or what have you might make you feel better right then and there, it's it, yeah. it's not going to provide you and your baby the energy it needs to grow, you know. And so although baby will be absolutely fine living off crackers for the first trimester, um, you're just not going to have the energy to function like, yeah. you know, how you'll probably want to. But within saying that as well, here's another silver lining for you. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like also, you know, when you mentioned for the first time in seven years you'd had a nap, I always say to women I feel like 
pregnancy is that time where it's preparing you for what is to come. Like I know. You know so My midwife used to yeah. always say that and I was like, I feel like really annoyed when you say that to me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's true. But now that you've had bub, do you sort of are you sort of like, oh yeah, like I get it know? now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I also had uh, I shouldn't say that too. I went to 42 weeks and two days and I found I pretty much cried every single day for the last two weeks probably and that I think was a really big lesson for me in like trying to let go of trying to control everything and have things wanting to go according to plan and according to time and work in with my sort of like OCD personality tendencies. I shouldn't say that but, you know, I like particular yeah. about things and wanting things to go to plan. So, yeah, I think there are lots of things and lessons that happen like that in pregnancy to sort of set you up for what's to come. Um, it totally is. Like it's such a wild ride and we were saying just off air before, like certainly I still believe even having had three kids, it's that zero to one that's the biggest um mm that's the biggest um jump like yeah an adjustment yeah and so after the first one by the second one you're sort of settling in and I can tell you by the third one you're well and truly settled <laughs> in and like naps are my survival um but you know it does it it's just like yeah every bit of it is is setting you up for that later journey and although it's hard to see at the time particularly if you haven't experienced what newborn or, you know, um, newborn and beyond life is like, it is definitely setting you up, you know, and um, motherhood's a wild ride. You definitely can't control everything, if anything. Anything, (laughs) yeah, definitely. Well, Shelley, I'd love if you could just tell us where we can find out more about you, where we can learn from you and your podcast and everything as well. Yeah, sure. So um, I hang out on Instagram, which is Shelly McKenzie Naturopath. That is where you'll find me mostly. Um, And then I've got an online clinic, Freedom Wellness. And I'm a co-host of a podcast, which is more fun than anything. And it's (laughs) um, called The No BS Approach to Motherhood. And I have a amazing co-host who's also a nutritionist, Catherine Hay, and we dive into, um, I guess, just cutting through the BS that can come with motherhood. We share lots of fun stories as well, like personal stories, but then also dive into, yeah, like topics like this, for example. So, um, yeah, that's a whole lot of fun as well. Amazing. I'll put all of those links in the show notes. And, yeah, just really want to thank you for your time today. You're welcome, darling. I'm glad, I'm glad we got there in the end. Yeah, you did. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Before you go, a quick reminder that any information discussed on the PCOS podcast is general in nature, does not take into account your personal health circumstances, and of course, does not replace medical advice.